Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as usual, you'll have 20 minutes or so of thought and insight from uh, the pair of us at Hotel Analyst on matters of the moment. Uh, my name is Chris Bound, the editor at Hotel Analyst, and I'm joined, as usual, by Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst. Our thoughts, our comments are sort of taken from the more detailed perspective pieces we write for our subscribers at Hotel Analyst, uh, available via the website. Um, hotelanalyst.co.uk do tip along there if you'd like to find out a bit more about how to subscribe to the uh, perspectives and also to our daily news now uh, the first of the pieces we're going to talk about this week is another roundup of uh, second quarter results and we're going to start by taking a look at what's going on for the big beasts of lodging Marriott and Hilton who've uh, just announced their second quarter results and it did feel uh, for the first time in quite a while like we are almost back to some sort of normal and that new normal is looking distinctly like the old normal despite the uh, the the doom and gloom about uh, people never going back to the office about uh, corporate events never going to be the same again because everyone was going to use zoom forever after it does feel from everything that we are being told by the CEOs of uh, Marriott and Hilton that corporate bookings are coming back at the same sort of level sure there's some changes in the way uh, leisure is operating and in the way people are perhaps uh, mixing business and leisure in their trips but uh, the volume of business seems to be coming back and uh, people are booking at rates which give a little bit of headroom for the hotel companies that are facing inflationary pressures uh, so reassuringly all seems back to normal yeah um, <clears throat> not quite completely back to normal yet um, and this is actually I would argue good news given that we are already hitting record numbers so hmm. Q2 was a record for almost all of the hoteliers they just bust all previous records um, and driving these um, beats is the rate um, so if we take Marriott as an example global uh, rate was 8% higher in June 22 um, while occupancy was 5 percentage points lower so we had record revpar um, on the back of this higher rate now you can look at this in um, two ways one you could say well um, that this is fantastic news as occupancy comes back even further we're going to see even more outperformance however if you're a pessimist if you're one of life's uh, glass half empty types <laughs> you're going to be saying um, oh well we've got this these terrible economic headwinds coming our way we're never going to get f uh, a full recovery in uh, occupancy um, I don't believe that um, I think there's two things we're still getting back to normal with um, one is the uh, groups um, they all said groups are are coming back but they're taking their time and there's going to be probably into next year for groups to come back the other thing as we all know about is um, international travel in particular airlift um, which is uh, you know a huge drag at the moment Mm. Um, and 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 being a real problem and yet we've got these record numbers coming out despite all of that um, and it simply isn't being reflected in these numbers they really are so much stronger than um, anybody even even though we, we've been pretty bullish we've been on mm. the bullish end of the spectrum here at hotel analyst for a well over a year now and these surprising on the upside even from that bullish outlook um, they are so super strong and it's confounding all the pessimism so 
even the you know Chris Nassetra, CEO of Hilton, who's been a the, the you know the, the the chief bull really in the <laughs> yes, sector. Yes, yeah. uh, um, he has. He said um, how surprised he was just how strong Europe has been, and in particular the urban market. So you know, as you reference there, Chris. Um, um, the offices, you know, the end of the office, and all mm. this kind of pessimism we had during um, the the real dark days of um, the COVID lockdowns. Um, but the reality is that the cities have come storming back, and Paris and London and other major European cities are just chock a block with uh, visitors at the minute. And, and this is uh, causing record rates, record occupancy. Well, not so much record occupancies, but certainly record rates, and it's re- it's really strong. Um, and remember this is off the back of a leisure uh, customer and typically leisure customers uh, are not the highest payers it's the corporates who Mm. are the higher payers Um, and as these kick in and they are kicking in and I think there was an interesting insight uh, Marit's Tony Capuano on the setter who talked about the EY conference um, that they hosted um, and uh, they said just how important it was for that firm that professional services firm to get back together it was a meeting of their newly minted partners and they came back together it's just crucial um you know that they have these face-to-face meetings and the idea that everything's going to be replaced by zoom is for the birds and it really we we do need these meetings and in many ways how we're seeing this changes um coming through is actually going to end up boosting travel and boosting hotel demand um and 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 as we've remarked previously technological innovation has historically increased demand for business travel and uh, video conferencing actually does seem to be doing the same thing those sort of shorter term um, you know overnight visits just to show a bit of face to the client sure they're getting cut back but the need for um, more meaningful um, contact that is if anything is growing and so you're cutting out the 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 nonsense stuff if you like the the stuff which really is better delivered via a video conference and replacing it with more meaningful interactions um, and this is typically the expectation is that we're is to have longer uh, stays um, perhaps maybe fewer journeys although in reality that does not seem to be <laughs> coming out um, mm-hmm. and people are are wanting short stays and and lots of them um, so we'll see how that goes but certainly I think what is clear is that we are not seeing a, uh, a downturn um, because of the rise of video conferencing now I went on in my um, uh, commentary piece um, to to talk about. I, th- I think the thing that uh, is on everybody's mind right now is not so much where we have been in sort of Q1 and Q2, which is fantastic. It's where we're going, um, and uh, Q3 and Q4 still look super strong. Now there were some signs of deterioration in outlook in July. Um, uh, more on the side now we're not going to talk about this in the podcast but we certainly have a story on the OTAs uh, this week's perspective in this week's perspective and that they did show a slight weakening would perhaps be too strong um, a word for it but a very minor wobble in July but they are anticipating August and September to be better and in fact growing momentum in the in the second half Um, within the 
the big beasts as we're calling them here um no signs of that though um july is pretty robust still and they're expecting that to carry on um thanks as we've already mentioned to the coming back of groups um the ongoing strength of leisure the coming back of corporate travel and um a, a very robust um general demand outlook this doesn't square and we've been struggling with this um, I think over the last gosh few months really um, in terms of the deteriorating economic outlook and this is you know the the received wisdom is that hotels um, align with what's happening in GDP growth well the Bank of England came out this week with uh, the most extraordinarily uh, gloomy set of forecasts I mean it, it, it was just um, <laughs> off the charts really I mean I mean quite literally off the charts and they, they there's this in, um, fantastic PowerPoint within the the 101 page uh, monetary policy committee report um, they do a link to a powerpoint and it shows where all the external forecasters sit um, and and the bank of england is actually outside of the the broad range of all of these external forecasters much more pessimistically outside um, you know so they're saying higher unemployment higher inflation and um, significantly worse uh, economic growth um, in fact contraction for five quarters an extraordinarily long recession a worse recession in terms of length um, time period than um, what happened in 2009 um, not as um, uh, deep um but certainly in terms of the the duration of it worse um i have to confess i'm struggling with it i don't you know last month we had uh, um, a forecast from um the ey item club they use an econ econometric model which is based on on the model used by the uh, uk treasury and they said well it's quite likely the uk is going to avoid recession altogether so i mean it's extraordinary that within a month less than a month it's about two weeks i think the gap between these two sets of outlooks um we seem to be you know so profoundly pessimistic now we have got a cost of living um problem challenge um but you know right now the data is nowhere near as gloomy as everybody's saying um so if if i mean i looked at uh, what happens happened over the last couple of years comparing inflation and comparing uh, wage increases so if we look at january 2020 and compare where we got to in january 2022 what we saw was uh, inflation at 5.8 percent over that two-year period so uh, prices went up so this is a, a fixed index of prices um, cpih which is consumer price inflation including housing costs that went up 5.8 percent um but wages went up 10.1 percent these are all office for national statistics numbers the gold standard for statistics now there's no question inflation has been getting worse and if we extend out <clears throat> remember i'm looking january 2020 to um january 2022 and if we go january 2020 to may 2022 which is the latest figures available um the inflation bit is 10.5 percent and the wage bit 10.3 percent so we have hit now a negative real wage growth which but you know it's 0.2 um so it, it, it's 
you know it, it is we are entering negative territory but we've had very good period in in the most recent past um, and it's a question of how bad it gets over the next six to nine months um, and whether or not uh, wages can be pushed up to counteract this and um, nobody really knows and you know all, all this doom and gloom around the cost of living crisis it is not reflecting the potential for pushing up wages and certainly if you look at pensions they've been had a double digit increase if workers start getting a double digit increase in in wage growth um, this is going to hugely help and assist in terms of any any major crisis here now of course there's going to be people who suffer when you have this level of dislocation um, there's going to be but in terms of our sector in particular these are not people that are a big big part of our market they are a small part of the market most of the demand for hospitality comes from the top half of the income scale um, and yes energy prices affect a bit but really not that much and it is very difficult to see how this is going to be quite as gloomy as everybody seems to be factoring in right now. Uh, one other data point I'll just throw out is Barclay card. Um, that's about half of all UK spending on debit and credit cards in July. July on July, it was uh, so July 21 on July 2022, 7.7% hike it, um, in spending. One point. 6% up on June 2022 um, so this doesn't at the moment look that much of a recession those those signals simply aren't there and you factor in this really strong labor market um, and you know I, you'd have to bet that workers will be able to push prices up um, rather wages up quite a bit to counteract the, the increase in prices maybe not completely maybe yes there will be a, a, a net negative but I, I really don't think it's going to be quite as as gruesome as we are currently being told it is going to be and this this um, very sort of doom laden outlook we seem to be drifting into and oh gosh I've, I've been, I've been um, waffling away <laughs> here have. Chris but I want one final one final piece to talk about here because I think this is all sort of coming together but i think critically for for the listeners to this podcast they're deal doers um or deal uh, um advisors um and it's that market which is critical to them um and you know the people i've been talking to over the last week or two are saying um well actually we've put the pens down for august and we're going to come back again in september and have a rethink as to where we are and i think that that that, that does seem to be an attitude right now we do seem to have had a bit of a pause in deal making um and really there's a lot of um plates spinning and people are trying to work out what what it all means certainly i think this this ending of ultra loose monetary policy which has been in train well since 2009 um when the you know it was 2000 march 2009 when the the bank of england dropped its base rates down to that all-time low of half a percentage point to 50 bips um, never been below 200 bips before um so incredibly low so the reversal of this ultra loose is of course going to cause major uh, rethinks in terms of how you you structure a deal um, and this has to be factored in but actually I think one of the big problems we've had which has been the absence of um, assets to buy um, putting up um, 
interest rates, ending this this asset price inflation we've had is going to create opportunities, I think, within that. So I think we're going to see a lot more opportunities um, over the coming couple of years than we've seen over the last decade plus. So I think it's super exciting outlook from that point of view. Um, you know, and, and it's very difficult. If I knew the answers, if I knew exactly which way we were, you know, how how much asset prices might be impacted, if I knew, you know, exactly where interest rates were going to go, that so much is in a state of flux right now. But what I do know is, you know, this is the first time in more than a decade where we've got these big shifts. And when we have these big shifts, there are big opportunities. Now, picking up on your theme, Andrew, of kind of a mismatch between what's immediately in front of us and what's looking further ahead, uh, we're going to talk now about um, the UK housing market, where you know we're just now receiving dire warnings that uh, prices are actually starting to fall. Uh, never good for homeowners. Uh, but at the same time, institutional buyers and institutional investors are looking to get into into the housing market, both uh, long term as as build to rent and buy buy for rent uh, but also um, interestingly um, we hear from uh, someone who's active in the market the the pension funds are also potentially interested in uh, lending money to help kind of rebalance the uh, the build for sale market in the UK as well um, so uh, obviously there's plenty of private equity guys already been in uh, build to rent in the UK and are building have, have built and have developed quite a number of of exciting new kind of uh, rental brands um, but we've got Lloyds Bank coming in they've set something up called Citra Living um, I think they picked off a, a first site or two Macquarie the Australian uh, infrastructure investors have established something called Goodstone Living they've hired to um, veterans of the sector to help drive their their movement forward um, and then we've also got some other interesting actors in the market um, there's a, a UK listed REIT called Home REIT who are specifically buying up uh, property assets which they are renting long term to charities and local authorities to house the homeless um, but we've also been speaking to a, a company called Downing uh, who do several things they're investment advisors one of the things they also do is they they provide uh, development loans to the house building market and they've been taking the temperature of pension funds and discovering that uh, potentially the the pension funds are, are now interested in in coming into some kind of development uh, loan uh, role in in the housing market what happened since the the previous downturn in 2008 was that a lot of the smaller and medium-sized construction companies building smaller volume houses in the UK kind of fell out of the market and, and market became very much polarised uh, such that we have the, the famous big house builders in the UK who famously build houses, make lots of money and don't necessarily do them to fantastic quality. Um, and then we've got sort of a very small uh, number of um, bespoke players but some of the sort of small and medium people were kind of squeezed out in the market uh, in the last decade and the the hint is that uh, the pension funds could come back into the market and help help fund those developers to come back in and deliver perhaps more small or medium sized schemes that actually have more of a sense of community and fit more into existing urban and suburban landscapes so uh, interesting time when we the headlines are that uh, perhaps the housing market is turning sour those amateur buy to let investors are suddenly finding the mortgage market a bit tougher and perhaps talking about getting out uh, but the institutional guys are looking at uh, a real opportunity 
to get into something that has got uh, good long-term growth prospects and of course looks much more attractive than some of the other more uh, more kind of well traditional uh, elements of their property allocation strategy such as retail offices which are looking less good in the immediate future mm. and a point i made um in the previous story um was about the changing nature of property investments um and how really you've got to build um a model which involves income, an income return, as well as a capital value on exit return. Because um, if, you, if you're just banking on capital value on exit, it's, it's uh, you're taking a lot bigger risk, I think. Um, and this plays the need to have both income and capital um, uh, potential um, plays into operational real estate of which of course uh, build to rent is is one area um, and there's this you know very symbiotic relationship relationship between the opco and the propco um, which is going to drive drive the return here um, and, and it, I think I think it'd be a very foolish investor if they were just you know banking on that that capital value piece because there are so many variables out there right now which make that look extremely risky really um so um sort of spreading the spreading the risk into income is important and uh, i think this is this is where the we've have got this interest in build to rent not just in the on the sort of flat side of things the the multi-family as the americans uh, um, call it but also in the single family dwellings um we're seeing in interest in there i mean obviously of interest to listeners to this podcast is really what the uh, hoteliers are doing and i think there's two aspects here um in terms of hospitality one is i think we're going to see um, a lot more uh, um, movement from executives in hospitality companies into these other areas of operational real estate. We've remarked on this several times. Um, we're also going to be seeing a, a more and more interest um, by the big hotel brand companies in sticking a badge on some of this um, build-to-rent or build-to-buy um, stuff that's out there. Um, and I think, Chris, you reported in your story on the latest yeah. move Marriott did, in London um, which was this uh, build to buy thing which is being branded under the Marriott and Marriott is also supplying um, some of the services um, so I, I think this this branded residence piece I, I, I it's not going to become a huge thing for the hotel companies it's much more of a sort of brand extension um, it, it's interesting you look at Marriott's investor presentations and they lump um, branded residents in with their you know when they talk about their Ritz-Carlton yachts um, you know, nobody's expecting Ritz-Carlton yachts to suddenly be a major part of, of, of Marriott's uh, future earnings um, and I don't think equally branded residences are going to be a major part but they're a very highly profitable part um, and an interesting part and it's what how, how it's evolving I think is quite fascinating in terms of the interaction on the uh, loyalty scheme side so <clears throat> If you go and buy this thing in London, um, which you uh, mm -hmm. write about, Chris, it's uh, a golf investor, isn't it? It's Golf mm. Islamic Investments, building 31 luxury homes, and it's going to be a autograph collection. And they reckon they've already got, they've uh, already got about a quarter of them away. Mm. 
Mm. Well, yeah, um, it's clearly mm. appetite for that, um, for these sort of things. Uh, um, um, and but but those buyers are going to be given elite status within Marriott's Bonvoy program. Just by having the residence, you get that elite status. Um, so there's an interesting link there. But and also within homes and villas, uh, Marriott, you can um, spend your Bonvoy points on that stuff. You can spend your Bonvoy points on on the yachts and collect your Bonvoy points staying at homes of villas and staying on the yachts um so there's all this 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 uh, th this brand extension is sort of deepening the the customer relationship and the focus on those high end um uh people who are actually are the the, the by far the most important uh, customers um for um the big hotel brand company so they generate an enormous amount of um, their profits from a relatively small number of people and these brand extensions can help capture them and bring them bring them in the fold um, and I think so we're going to see a bit more of uh, of this kind of branded residence piece I mean, I, I'm a little bit of a skeptic about the economics of it I have to confess um, it's interesting for example the homes and villas piece uh, Marriott is bothering to do any of the servicing themselves um, some pre other hoteliers have tried to service these residential properties uh, next to adjacent hotels and but Marriott's decided now that's not going to work we just focus on our hotels where we, we're managing them um, and we'll hire in external companies to come and service this this um, homes and villas piece um, and yet with this thing um, um, in in London and some of the other branded residences Marriott is managing that well they must be making one heck of a profit to justify that is all is all I can say and I wonder how how that will work out in the long term a report from Savills um, back in November looked at the premium um, people were prepared to pay or at least appeared to be prepared to pay for um, uh, um, residences which have a hotel brand compared to residences that don't have a hotel brand and in big urban gateways it's something like 20 percent uh, premium and going up to um, over 40 percent in emerging cities so it's probably you need that brand reassurance there which is why that's there to make that make sense so this is an interesting uh, sideline for the hotels i just don't see it being a, a a major major area for them but certainly to to, to the, the main thrust of the piece in terms of um, bill to rent that's clearly something which is uh, a grower and i you know i would point you always look at what some of the uh, the private equity types are up to and Goldman Sachs uh, back in January last year they bought uh, spent 150 million on a portfolio of 918 homes um, and that's in, in the UK um, up in the northwest of England and that's a clear sign I think that this is really catching the attention of uh, professional investors and I think we can see a lot more action. Now finally we're going to nip back to have another look at some more results and uh, quickly discuss the uh, results from second quarter of the major franchise hotel operators Choice and Wyndham. Choice obviously very much uh, dominated by what goes on in the US, Wyndham much, much more international portfolio um, and they've both had a very strong pandemic relatively because they had uh, kind of strong consistency from blue-collar workers all the way through the pandemic and, and have done 
uh, very well uh, on the way out as well. Um, both Sharm down the right. The interesting contrast, though, is that um, while they're both looking for acquisitions now, ways to spend their cash to further grow their business, Choice has uh, made that big acquisition in buying Redis and Americas recently, whereas Wyndham turned that one down and uh, but pronounces itself still very much on the lookout for um, uh, bolt-on additions that it can buy. Um, otherwise, they're going to end up giving cash back to shareholders because they're generating plenty of it again. Mm, yeah, well, this is the the benefits of this this model. I mean, it's it's the amount of cash it's throwing off. I mean, um, Wyndham gave some numbers. They're saying sixty seven percent conversion rate um, so far. The the first half of twenty twenty two, it's um, yielded two hundred twenty four million US dollars of free cash flow, which is uh, astonishingly powerful business model. Now, looking at Joyce and Wyndham. Um, in many ways they're heading in opposite directions to each other i think you referenced that um chris but i mean um in some aspects but i mean more broadly choice is focusing on upscale and is talking about using its balance sheet to bolster um the, the newly acquired radisson brands um Wyndham, on the other hand uh, less interested in the upscale stressing the importance of limited service saying how resilient this makes it um it's exiting its management business um um it sold off its uh, um that CPLG piece for um, for 84 million US dollars. Um, it's also exiting some of its, uh, um, or most of its, um, the remaining the tiny little bit it has of real estate investments. So it sold a uh, property in in Orlando, Florida, for 121 million US dollars in March, and it sold one in Puerto Rico for 62 million in May. Um, that's just making it much more of a pure play franchising machine, just to keep throwing off this cash um, on the other hand a choice seems to be choosing to to double down on this upscale push and spending you know it, it, um, uh, by no means is it's not going to be asset light but it is prepared it seems much more prepared to use its balance sheet and it's you know it's talking about having skin in the game and pat patius the ceo talked about having skin in the game for some of its deals and how that was a necessary factor that doesn't seem to be so much of a focus for for Wyndham. but uh, it'll be interesting to see how these two different approaches end up playing out what we can see is that Wyndham's going to break through the million room club mark um it it's 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 sitting um on uh, it's it's its pipeline now is over 200,000 um and it it should in the next year or two break break through that it's got currently 100 819,000 rooms um which are open and 208,000 in the pipeline. Now this compares to Choice, um, which has 575,000 rooms, but it's got just 84,000 in its pipeline. Um, the Radisson helps it add 68,000 rooms, but you know the, the what Choice talks about is how it's now adding um, contracts which deliver 
higher levels of return than its previous contracts this is something Accor has talked about as well saying you know never mind our NUG our net unit growth numbers actually look at the quality of our earning stream we are adding and this is the same sort of argument that Choice is talking about whereas Wyndham seems just to be focused on going gangbusters for growth right now so I think there is a there is a separation here between these two franchises um, and we will we will know which is going to be the winner in a few years time and it is it's either you take the simplicity of the Wyndham approach or you take the the flexibility of the now finally let's end our podcast this week with our five star and no star awards and starting with five stars uh, handed out to the Thai government which has launched a soft loans program to help its uh, small and medium-sized hospitality businesses in the country to get going again welcome welcome support yeah no indeed <clears throat> and i think that the key bit of this i think is that we've got a government here that is recognizing how instrumental the hospitality sector is in terms of its economy um Thailand um, pre-pandemic was the fourth biggest uh, inbound um, had the fourth highest revenue from inbound tourism international tourism according to the World Tourism Organization and it's it's great to see you know a government acknowledging and recognizing and those stars this week to the authorities in Hong Kong Uh, they've they've reduced the quarantine requirements for arriving international visitors however they've retained it and so you still have a a three-day hold in a hotel if you're troubling to visit that part of the world yeah and and it's bonkers lockdowns that the whole lockdown strategy has been proved to be bonkers um you could have made a case for it just to give your people time to get vaccinated though i think that's really stretching it given the reality of uh, of of the numbers we've seen um but this ongoing lockdown not just in hong kong but in the people's republic of china as well is just crazy and is doing serious damage to their economy um the sooner they see sense um the better but uh don't um, count on authoritarian regimes. And on that side, you know, we'll say goodbye for now.